This episode of The Other Side of Darkness is dedicated to the memory of Lenny Von Dolan, uh, who played Harold Smith on Twin Peaks uh, and in Firewalk with me. Uh, Lenny passed away on July 5th, and uh, I, I wrote down some thoughts when I heard about it. Um, Harold was one of the best examples of the completely unabashed sincerity that Twin Peaks could achieve. Uh, his character was earnest, sometimes to the point of discomfort. Uh, he could come off as absurd or even comical at times. Uh, but there was a, a deep vulnerability and a softness to his character that was really rare uh, for television and still is today. Um, what I love about Harold is really what I love about Twin Peaks. So rest in peace, Lenny Von Dolan. The Other Side of Darkness is brought to you in part by Tweed's Cafe of North Bend, Washington, the real-world site of the Twin Peaks Double R. Stop by in person at 137 West North Bend Way for a slice of cherry pie and a damn good cup of coffee, and follow Tweed's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Tweed's Cafe. Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Sign Peaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Sign Peaks, your host and narrator. Today I'm speaking with Seinfeld crew member Thea D'Souza, who joined the show's second unit in season two and stayed on until the final season. Thea worked in New York to capture Seinfeld's establishing shots and on-location scenes, and was involved firsthand as the series grew into the legend that it is today. Thea also has a really cool connection to the Twin Peaks universe that I can't wait to share with you. Stick around after the show to hear this week's featured artist, Cold Mailman. Now, here is Thea D'Souza. We are here with Thea D'Souza, and Thea, I'm so glad that you gave me some time today to talk. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your page. The idea of David Lynch and Seinfeld coming together just blew my mind from day one. I just couldn't believe somebody would come up with the two two of the most genius pieces of pop culture in the last, you know, whatever, forever. Well, thank you. And I, I agree on that, like genius moments in pop culture and television history. Um, and you are someone who, judging by not just like your work background, but also the page that you currently run, uh, your moms are watching, which y'all, you got to follow, by the way. Um, it's it's lovely. Um, you know a thing or two about uh, television history and you've, and you've been there for a lot of it. Um, so Thea was on the second unit crew of Seinfeld, and I want to get into it. Um, first of all, when exactly were you on uh, Seinfeld and how did you get into it? So I started in the second season of the show. So it had already been going a season and I had just graduated college. I graduated in 91. So it was right around then what I, that I started. Um, there was a woman named Barbara who did what I did before me, but she had gone on to do some other things. So I started the second season and I left the season before it ended. Gotcha. Okay. And um, for those who know nothing about the television industry, Ed, explain to us what uh, a second unit crew does on a television set. Well, it's funny because I think in real life, they have actual crews that work that have Teamsters and unions and they work for a, a particular show. And of course, there's a production company and this was Castle Rock that 
farms it out to the network. So you're not getting paid by NBC, you're getting paid by Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically that would all be part of production. You'd have the producers and the executive producers and your second unit. But for some reason, Seinfeld and a bunch of other shows didn't go that route. They farmed us out. They found people, they found me, you know, just to do this for them. So typically the second unit crew is part of your entire production. Like if you have a movie and you just want establishing shots for your movie, that would be part of your core crew that would go shoot the establishing. So establishing would be anything exterior. Um, We also did camera truck work. So anything you see outside of a car window, basically anything that made the show New York. Yeah. And of course we have a New York street on the Fox lot that they used um, for Seinfeld. But they, this was not, you know, this was mostly non-character stuff, although we did film the cast a few times in New York. They came to Central Park for us to film them. But mostly it was just things that didn't have the cast in it, and they just established what the scene was going to be. We did a lot of weird stuff for them, too. Like, we filmed David Letterman. We had to go to his studio and film him. So we had, so there were strange things that we did that weren't just exterior shots, but mostly they were. Right. Oh, that's awesome. What was your experience like on set? How would, you know, what was the vibe on Seinfeld? Well, so I'll tell you the story of how I got on. So my, my boyfriend worked at Isabella's, which is unrelated, um, amazingly enough to the fact that I got the job from Seinfeld (sighs) at Isabella's, but I was sitting at his bar and I'm talking to a girl who was dating another bartender. And this is what she did. She had just started becoming the second unit production manager of Seinfeld. And she also worked for the nanny and the single guy. Right. So we did a lot of single guy shots, too, and nanny shots. So she said I told her I was getting my master's in film. And she said, would you love to would you like to come be a PA for me? Um, Just show up tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. at the CC rentals where we rented the the van that kept the generator in there and all the lights. And, you know, we'd go pick up the film equipment. So that's how I got the job. It was just real easy. And I was just going to be kind of a grunt person. But I mean, very soon I started doing everything with her, like location scouting. And I mean, it was me and her, we were partners and we hired the crew. We found whoever was available. So it was great. You know, what was so great was it's a Thursday night show. So it's not yeah. a little, little deal. It's, right. it's a, you know, friends in Seinfeld. However, you didn't get the sense that this was a juggernaut at all in season two. As a matter of fact, it was kind of like you felt like you're working on a little bit of, especially because I wasn't union and I was doing this renegade job. Mm-hmm. I just never really got the sense that this was just this iconic show yet. And we didn't, of course, we watched the episodes every week, but we never got a script in advance. So we didn't know what our shots were for most of the time. I knew Susan died because we did the <laughs> New York hospital and they let ah. me, they let me in on that one, but that's the only plot point I ever knew in advance. So we were just wow. kind of running around out in the streets with this camera can that said NYU student film so that they wouldn't <laughs> I mean, this is also, but what I loved about it the most was we got to go out for the rap party every year. So you got to hang with the cast and they were very, very generous. When I tell you we made, I'm going to say $900 for a day's work. Plus they let us eat wherever we wanted. So uh-huh. in, in between your day shots and your night shots, we go to what the fanciest, most expensive restaurant we could find with the whole crew. So I got to try all these New York City restaurants I would never be able to afford as a college graduate student. Yeah. And that was great. They never once complained about any invoices or, and I, I assume that's because they were saving all the money that they would have had to pay Teamsters. Our mm-hmm. days were so long. We went, we got to set at six, you know, we got to pick up stuff at 6 a.m. We didn't get home till like midnight because we had to do day and night shots for everything. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. 
So if you're thinking about union, they're getting what double time, overtime, blah blah blah, everything. Yep. Getting our little standard stipend. So mm-hmm. really, I guess that's why. But I love that. And they always sent gifts. They would send like a bicycle that said Seinfeld on it, or like amazing, huge, generous gifts to us. And that. Oh was wow. Cool. And they were super appreciative. But it was hard too, on the other hand, because they were in LA and they didn't understand weather at all. So they. Oh. Would, yeah, and the schedule is very tight. So they would say, okay, we need you know a picture of. Um, my horse and carriage, but there can't, you know, be any snow in the shot. And I would say, well, we had a blizzard yesterday. I can't take the snow. And I literally had PAs out there shaking branches. And like, if it rained, forget it. You know, like they didn't care that right. it was raining. they wanted the shot with no rain and they didn't care how you got it. And it was these oh. crazy things like that, that they just didn't understand. I'm on the East coast. I'm not, you know, LA weather. So that exactly. Was- and it's 1994. You know, you're not Googling what's the weather in New York right now. You're watching the weather channel. Exactly. And also you're not, they're not able to, you know, finesse the shots like they are now. Nothing's digital. I mean, remember oh, we're, yeah. putting, we're putting this on 35 millimeter film. Yeah. To get into a can, and the schedule was so tight. It was, they would tell us on Monday what they needed. So let's say they need a video store mm-hmm. and we would have to send them a couple different video store exterior pictures. FedEx overnight. So I'm talking nothing was happening, you know, by email or anything. And then they would look at the pictures, these hard copy pictures that we got from the photo mat. And they would, we have to go to one hour photo. Uh-huh. And then they would tell us which one they liked. And then we had to have that in the can back to them by, let's say, Tuesday or maybe Thursday, whatever it was, so that they could put it into the show and then air it on their, I think they, they filmed, they, put it in the can by Tuesday night. So mm-hmm. then it aired Thursday. So there was really no room for error. They needed this. They didn't care how you got it. So that was the craziest part of working for them it was always like a mad dash to get these shots and make sure it's in the film can it's processed and it's FedExed. And that was kind of, but it was fun. It just is not at all like how they do it today. No. Yeah. I imagine it isn't. Um, and what you're making me think of right now is um, what is behind me in my virtual background is the iconic now iconic tom's restaurant in new york which i i took this video when i went there in 2019 um and i'm guessing if you joined in season two because i don't think they showed uh tom's exterior in season one do you remember like how did they decide to shoot tom's uh and make that monks were were you kind of hearing all of that going on no as a matter of fact i would it just predated me so the woman barber before us had picked tom's and filmed Uh. it we had done, we did it a few times just for different um, people walking by or whatever, but I, we didn't pick that. I know I'm bummed that I didn't pick that, but she picked it and they chose it from her. And then it just became the establishing diner shot that they we always used. But I didn't pick that one. I wish I did. I picked a lot of other ones. <laughs> gotcha. Well, now you said you shot it a few times. Um, so you didn't go back like over the course of nine years, once a season and shoot an no. exterior Tom. So you just reused them from like Never. 1992. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting because I so like as someone who just sits and watches episodes, like I'll notice when okay, the exterior of Tom's is painted brown here. Okay, two episodes later, it's painted white, and then I'm I'm thinking in my mind, okay, this is what the restaurant looked like over the years. Um, but you just kind of dropped a bombshell on me. That's that's exactly. really cool. I think that they I don't know they they messed with the film or something to make it look a little different so that it didn't seem like the same exact shot every single week but we I think we shot it in my whole years of working there twice so it for sure was done it was for sure you the same shot used many 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 times just they must have 
either digitally put in people or they must have, or or the th two times we used it so now you're maybe you're only seeing three shots of the same pedestrians mm -hmm. but we for sure we're not going up there all the time no <laughs> we didn't wow. have time to well, you know, however y'all did it, y'all did a great job of masking that because I mean, literally, like when I watch it, it feels like it feels like I've seen nine different angles of that restaurant. And, and I guess I haven't. It's just Jedi mind tricks. Um, but but that's cool. Now, tell me this. So shooting these shots, you know, you're driving up in a van, you're going out running and gunning. You've got, you know, NYU on the side of the cameras. How long does it take to, to get coverage and to feel like you've got it? Because like I'm a video guy too, so I, I kind of have an understanding of running around with cameras and tripods and, and getting stuff. But guerrilla style, it's even crazier. Um, what is that like? I mean, it, I made, made it sound like we're just running out with a little camera. We had an entire setup. We had, you know, a generator and lights and we had a mm -hmm. great, we always had, I mean, the guy who are, is our, was our DP for a long time was named Kramer, which is amazing. And now mm -hmm. he's like an Academy Award nominated DP. So wow. he was great. And we didn't always use him every week. We kind of switched up, but we used him a lot as much as we could because he did the best work. Mm -hmm. But maybe he wasn't available shooting something else. It was great money for everyone. We were getting paid well, so were they. And it was easy. Yeah. You're shooting the front of a building, no actors. So it's very easy. So yeah. we, had, we kind of were very organized and we had great crew. We had a couple of PAs. So it wasn't that bad. Like I said, the hardest parts were the weather, um, and just a matter of getting people to not, you know, look at the camera when they walk by, but we all would walk by a lot. I'm in a couple of them. You can't ever really tell it's me. My friend, her leg is the leg that comes out of the limo when George uses the um, picture of his girlfriend to get into the meatpacking district club. Oh, wow. That's her leg. I love the that. Forbidden one. City. Right. So I always think that of her when I see that. And I walk by um, in a raincoat with an umbrella in front of the... I believe it's the pizza place in the West Village where George takes his tip back. I believe that's the one. I can't remember if it's that one or <laughs> so that. And then there's a couple others. But, you know, so that kind of stuff, we just had people, we just would shoot it so people wouldn't look at us and that kind of thing. And then there was always the layer, too, of telling, getting the permission from the owner of the place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. Yeah. But if it's involved in the plot, we did. And then there was that always always the problem that we didn't know the plot in advance. So if I'm asking you, for example, can I use your pastry shop for Seinfeld? I am not able to tell you that it's going to be an episode about the hair and the, you know. Oh, problem. yeah. Schnitzer's Bakery. So they were not happy about that. It was an old, like, 85-year-old couple. And they, oh. they actually really got upset. They thought it really made them look bad. And I just had to tell them, I didn't know. I don't know the plot when I'm, and yeah. they were excited about being on the show. But so there were things like that. But most people, of course, were thrilled to be on. And a lot of times, like I said, we didn't even ask. We just shot it and left, you know, a brownstone or whatever, George's place, Elaine's place. We didn't ask anybody. We just went out front and shot it and went in the day and went in the night. Yeah. And it, 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 it's so cool, too, that these decisions that may have been, you know, arbitrary based on creatively what looks right and everything, you must not have had any idea that even years and years later, some of these would take on a life of their own. I mean, not just Tom's, but like there are Instagram meme accounts named after specific establishing shots like Champagne Video Store. Um, and of course, I don't know if you've seen um, Jerry Stiller before he passed away, went and visited that brownstone that was the exterior for the Costanza house and went inside and sat down with a family that lived there and like reminisced and stuff. Um, what I try to like keep in mind is that um, 
like for fans, it's like it's a real world. Like Seinfeld is its own world, and all these places, you know, take the production element out of it. It's those are the real places, and I, I don't know. I just how, do you does that like ever kind of dawn on you that you kind of as a second unit crew member like helped shape the world that has gone on to exist like twenty five years later. I mean, it's so crazy because if you knew how inadvertent it all was, if you knew how everything just depended on what street corner we could do, very, very few of these decisions were creative. Right. There were obviously a few, but most of them were they wanted, you know, a women's prison and these random things that we had to go do. And we just did them. And it was no one thinking, oh, I love the way that this tree looks in front of it. No, never. Yeah. Ever, ever, ever. And so it's, yeah, of course now, I mean, it's they're they're just part of the iconoclasts or they're just it's amazing to me because of how completely random and inadvertent almost every establishing shot on Seinfeld is it really is not thought out really Larry David doesn't have anything to do with it you know there's right. no, Jerry's not saying oh you know it would be cool it's just us them saying hey we need this and us saying we need a video store okay great so so many of them were not thought out I hate to say it because it sounds better I mean I'm sure David Lynch would think out his exteriors but they're not at Castle Rock doing that <laughs> right that's amazing um okay so i am curious because you said that at, at the same time you were working on seinfeld you were also working on the nanny um and you've worked on other television shows as well what was different about your experience working on seinfeld uh that separated it from those other shows i mean it wasn't really at first at all because the single guy was very popular the nanny was very popular I mean, we would just give us whoever's going to give us money and the word would get around like, oh, we have this renegade crew, they're cheaper, use them. And so we would get the call. The single guy was funny for me because my um, boyfriend that I went out with for two decades, his mom lived in Bayonne, New Jersey, and she had a row house and they needed a row house. They wanted, they want, it was supposed to be Queens, but I, I put it, send a picture in of her in front of her house, which looked just like everything else. And they said, yeah, we'll take that one. So I told her and she was all excited. And I sent the footage in and then she had a party to tell all of her friends, I'm going to be on the single guy. And then I came to watch the show with her and they, the single guy, Jonathan Silverman looks, stands in front of her house and says, or no, we just stands there. And then they do the shot of her house. And then he walks inside and he says, what a dump. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know. So here I am at this little party and she's so excited. And then there's, that's what he said. So that was my, but you know, otherwise completely standard shots they needed. Seinfeld felt different because we were so involved. We were the only crew they had. And again, we did a lot of the camera truck work. So we were always renting sobs and going out to Long Island, you know, going on that highway for all the, those shots where Kramer's picking up the garbage. And so yeah. we, have do, we have to do like road signs. And so, and then we had to, you know, we were in the car, like for, for example, Kramer on the fire engine. That's yeah. in the camera truck filming us going crazy through the streets to make it look oh. because if you think about it, you can't fake a New York City street out in right. LA with cab right. people screaming. So we mm -hmm. had that was we felt a lot more involved in the show. The other shows, they would just give you give you little pickup shots to do here and there. And yeah, and they were not as intent on making it look New York as Seinfeld was or Castle Rock was. So I right. felt we were much more involved. And of course, we were the only ones doing it. I'm pretty sure the nanny and single guy had other crews, but we were, it was just us out there, out there in the wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. And so the, I know the shot you're talking about with Kramer on the fire truck. So, and like from a production standpoint, that's Michael Richards in front of a blue screen, I'm sure in right. LA shooting that on a prop 
fire truck and then you guys are actually shooting the real stuff that they are then right okay then chroming in yeah and if you look at the car scenes you'll see our truck work a lot but it it, it looks very fake i feel like like you can kind of tell but that that's the technology they had back then that was how it, they did it they, it was and, and i've like commented on this before watching seinfeld it's like you know it it definitely is the 90s um but for the 90s i think the thing that separated seinfeld from a lot of other shows is how much work they put into the production element of it like lighting was different on seinfeld um that just that it seemed to be and especially as they got more money um into the second half of the series like more effort was put into elevating kind of the the look of it at least i feel and i think that's why it kind of lasts longer it looks better in hd than a lot of other old shows you know i think they just cared more right and as the show went on of course things got more exciting for us and it was catching on still never to this level ever i mean my dad still had never seen seinfeld when i stopped working on that show wow he years later he called me and said you know the screamer guy's wacky i was like dad oh my gosh I, it was that's been 10 years <laughs> So it, had, it was very popular by the time I stopped, but it wasn't what it is now. You know, you just never knew if it was going to last. You hoped, to, you hoped they would stay with it longer. And, and people always ask me when I tell them, you know, how was Larry David? And I'm like, no, like this was not, I didn't work. The only people I ever met were the cast. I never met any of the, we, we dealt with a guy named Morgan Sackett. I'm sure you've heard his name. Mm -hmm. He was a point person on Seinfeld and he started as, you know, low down, but rose up through the ranks. But he was the guy who we always talked to, Morgan this, Morgan that. So that's pretty much only one of the only people we knew. We knew a couple other people, Tom um, Sharon's a couple a couple other people. Yeah, no, Tom Sharon is a, yeah, I'm very familiar with that name. Um, so after you left Seinfeld, where did you go from there? Well, I, I, there was one season left and I was very sad. I couldn't finish it out, but I um, ended up moving to Los Angeles to work in Hollywood. So uh -huh. at, at this point, I finished my master's degree and you know, I'm, I'm only working on Seinfeld one to two days a week, usually two, because you scout the locations one day and film. So it wasn't really a living. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm in New York City, so you can't, even though they were very generous, it wasn't a living. So I eventually, I bartended at night, and then eventually I felt like I really needed to go out and just start an actual career in Hollywood. So that's what I did. Nice. And um, I mean, I'm interested in that. Like, I'd like to know um, what was that path through Hollywood and where did it lead you to today? Well, I um, went out to Hollywood and I got a job at a temp agency. So they would just send me out to studios to work for. I was interested in, I, I didn't know what I was interested in. When I first got there, I just wanted to work in Hollywood. So they mm -hmm. put me with a manager. He was Keanu Reeves, Mike Myers, Chris Rock. They were his clients, um, a bunch of other people. And I was, I started as a receptionist and moved over to be his assistant. So mm -hmm. I basically did talent for my first year, helped, you know, Keanu buy a can opener and helped, you know, calm Mike Myers down when shooting on Austin Powers went over and that kind of stuff. And then after a year of that, I just was tired of doing talent. It's, it's a lot of handholding and babysitting and I'm, I have my master's degree. I was more interested in, you know, real filmmaking. So I moved over to development and I got a job at Copelson Entertainment. You know, they did Platoon and Seven and Eraser and all those movies to be an assistant there to a guy who was a senior vice president. And then after working for him for a year, I became creative executive for Harold Ramis on the Fox. Mm -hmm. So I went over to work for Harold as an executive. And then I moved back to New York to work for Julia Roberts. And I did a movie with Jennifer Lopez there and worked for Julia. 
we went through 9-11 together, like at Julia's company with Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon and all those people. And then I got diagnosed with MS. Mm-hmm. So I just started to work from home. I did script development from home. So they would send me their scripts to work on and develop. And ever, that's what I've done ever since. Um, I just a few years ago started ghostwriting. So I ghostwrite, you know, memoirs and things, but I still do a lot of script development. So basically I do what I used to do. I just don't do it in an office anymore. I just do it from home. Gotcha. Which is uh, something that I think a lot of people are learning that they can do. Right. I did it before it was cool though. I have to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask too, um, I think I remember from looking at your social media pages, do you have a daughter? I have two kids, a daughter and a son, three and five years old. Oh, they're three and five years. Okay. So they're maybe a little young for Seinfeld at this point. Have they seen any of it? No. And my husband's obsessed. You know, it's actually more, he can, he's more quick. He's quicker with the references uh-huh. than I am, which is amazing. Uh-huh. So it just goes to show you just because you yeah. shoot exteriors doesn't make you the Seinfeld, you know, encyclopedia. Uh-huh. So he's obsessed and um, I, we hope someday, but they're, yeah, too young. They don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get it. I've got a four-year-old. I tried showing him a little bit of the marine biologist episode uh, a little yeah, while ago, and, and he was like, okay, that's great. Let's turn on PJ Masks, please. <laughs> I know. Trust me, we can't wait. We can't wait for the day. But then by then, can you imagine how old that show is going to look to them? They're going to say, what's that thing he's holding? That's a telephone. Uh-huh. And, you know, but I think you're right, though. It has held up. So far, it's held up. Yeah, and I mean, good shows do hold up over the ages. I mean, I can, I'll still go back and watch I Love Lucy, you know, and the humor survives over time um what is your favorite episode of Seinfeld the marine biologist I was just saying yeah that's my favorite 100 percent. I love it I love how circular it is you know mm-hmm. the last scene and the Kramer pulling out the gut that to me was just the perfect episode yep yep and that um that monologue at the end that I think oh. I think I remember Larry David wrote that maybe the night before because they didn't have a good ending for the episode and Jason of course being the showman that he is just knocked it out I love it. And little known fact about that episode. um, I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but for the David Lynch fans in my audience, Cheryl Lee, who played Laura Palmer uh, on Twin Peaks, auditioned for the role that went to Carol Kane in that episode. Oh, I did not know that. You were asking, you were in your questions you gave me in advance, you said, do you have any connections with David Lynch? Mm -hmm. I do. I can say that Sherilyn Fenn auditioned for me when I was in casting, worked in casting. No way. (laughs) We're in an after school special on ABC. It was going to be called School Supplies, or I forget the name. But anyways, she auditioned. She didn't get the role. We gave it to a girl I went to college with, Moira Kelly. Oh, Moira Kelly, who then went on to play in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Exactly. And, and cutting edge. So she got the part because they look similar. They have the same kind of, you know, cute doll face with the black hair. Right. So I gave it to my friend from college instead of her. Oh my God. <laughs> I think that might be my only connection. I was trying to rack my brain. Like, have I met Kyle McLaughlin? Have I, I just don't think. Naomi, yeah. Watts, Naomi Watson, no, I don't think so. Cause yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Maura Kelly, I'll, I'll tell you is a really big connection um, because there's an eternal debate on between Twin Peaks fans because she replaced Lara Flynn Boyle who played right. uh, Donna in the series and people are always saying oh Lara Flynn Boyle's better no Maura Kelly's better um, but I mean I have love for both of them um, I, meant, of course, right. I meant she looks like Lara Ling. right right that's true right. but yeah she yep. was my roommate and roommate in college um, one of my roommates in college so I know her pretty well yeah we went, wow. went right through went Marymount Manhattan together for four years she was dating a guy in a band and we all used to go see the band together <laughs> 
Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Okay. Now that's, I'm, I'm glad we went down that trail uh, okay. because I'm really happy to hear that. So I want to give you um, an opportunity to, this is something I do with all my guests is if there's any nonprofits or charities that you're a fan of, um, because my listeners tend to like to donate to stuff, um, anyone locally or nationally that you think could use some money. Um, I'll just, I'll give the floor to you. Um, I, because I have multiple sclerosis, I, we raise money every year for national multiple sclerosis society. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband rides in a bike ride and we have everybody donate. We haven't done it in a few years cause we have kids now, but we raise sure. a lot of money. So that's a charity that's close to my heart. I know all the people there. We've worked with them for many years in LA. I feel very strongly that donations go to good causes through there that usually 80%, I think goes to research and that's a disease that's still not cured. So that one, that would be the one I would love if anyone feel like donating, that'd be great. That's wonderful. Thank you for doing that. And I'm going to put a link to that organization in the uh, show notes for those of you who would like to donate. Um, to close us out, Thea, I'd like to talk about this wonderful Instagram page that you run. Your moms are watching. Um, you've got over 26,000 followers and it's like, it's memes, it's TV. It's, I think you do a fantastic job. How did you get started doing this? Um, a year ago, my two friends and I thought it'd be fun to start something because we used to talk about Bravo together and we wanted to run a Bravo fan page, but it was funny because I didn't really, I wasn't on Instagram in that way. I had no idea what a meme was. And the two of them dropped out, I think day two, and that was the end of them. So then it was mine. So I just started making these memes and I'm terrible with computers and terrible at Photoshopping, but somehow I, I, I made memes for a long time, just funny memes that have to do with pop culture or Bravo shows. And then, and I think it was around December, I started just telling stories from my life on uh, there. I put them in my highlights. I tell about working in Hollywood and working, you know, catering Leonardo DiCaprio's Titanic New Year's Eve party and these crazy stories. And I think that's really the niche that I found on there is just storytelling, but also of course, still memeing and trying to, you know, lure people in that way. But my real passion is for storytelling and writing. So I'm hoping I've I've been able to kind of weave those two things together. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just as someone who kind of like, I try to do that too, you know, now that I've, I've found an audience that likes memes and finding opportunities to weave that into something writing based, you know, it's, it's a wonderful outlet. Exactly. There's just so many just plain meme sites. There's so many and they do so well. I said, I can't compete. You know, I I can do a great meme every once in a while, but daily, there's no way that I can keep up with these huge sites that are really great at it. So I just figured there's got to be another little, and I think the same as your page. I love your page and I love the way that you don't just succumb to the but I'm bump easy mm-hmm. Seinfeld David Lynch mashup meme. It's great because it makes your page so much more interesting and vibrant because they're just just so flooded. It's, it's such a flooded space. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for saying that. I really appreciate that. Um, it's it's a fun thing to do, and it's fun to connect with people that have a similar sense of humor, as I'm sure you've learned. And uh, I just kudos to you because you've got your finger on the pulse, obviously, of what people are wanting to talk about and. Like, I mean, I never thought I'd see a crossover between Seinfeld and Kim K and, and Pete Davidson, um, but uh, um, it, but it's just, it's fantastic. So I, I'm glad that I, uh, glad that I asked about that as well. And I will again, link that in the show notes for those of you who would uh, like to follow and I highly encourage. Um, Thea, before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to share with the Seinfeld fans listening who have been enjoying your work across uh, the entirety of the Seinfeld canon? Um, no, I think that, you know, it's, I'm just happy that now I think 
everyone appreciates every single aspect of the show. There's nothing, nothing better in this world than to have something you worked hard on, worked passionately on, cared most about anything else in my life are these silly little shots that people are loving them and appreciating them and realizing that they are part of the show because I am sure there's very, there are very few second unit crews that get asked to be to do podcasts and get recognized. So I just feel so honored that the Seinfeld community cares about this and that you mm -hmm. asked me to do this today. I really do because well, it was a little, you know, grunt job at the beginning. Yeah. It was. Well, I think you should be. I think, I mean, every part of a production crew is vital to creating that world. You guys are world builders. That's just, it is what it is. And we're grateful for it, for the work that you put into it. So once again, Thea D'Souza, Thank you so much for everything you did on Seinfeld. Thank you for spending the past 40 minutes gabbing with me. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'll see you on Instagram. All right, I'll see you there. This week's musical guest is Cold Mailman, a Norway-based indie music project founded by brothers Ivor and Martin Bowitz. The group has been recording music since 2008 and has been nominated for both a Norwegian Grammy and a UK Music Video Award. Ivor Boats has also composed several of the major themes used on this podcast, including the song you're hearing in the background right now. From their 2022 album, Not Remotely Blue, here is Cold Mailman with their song, Squeeze.
Music by Patrick Edwards, Ivor Bowitz, and Robert McDonald. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to The Other Side of Darkness and leave us a positive rating or review on your podcast app. You can follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or join our Facebook group. You could also visit our merch store at signpeaks.threadless.com. 50% of proceeds for the month of July will be donated to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, which you can also donate to directly through the link in our show notes. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. If you enjoy this podcast, you might also enjoy Watching Owen Wilson, the first podcast dedicated entirely to everyone's favorite catchphrase-loving comedic actor. Hosts Jake Menez and Michael J. Teeter make their way through Owen Wilson's entire filmography, rating each movie, counting each wow, and bringing in guests in an effort to befriend Owen Wilson himself. Find Watching Owen Wilson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and at watercooler.com. You can also listen to Mike Dowd, the voice of Kramer on this podcast, on his own podcast, Welcome to Twin Speaks. That's Twin Speaks with an S. Here's Mike and co-host Janine with more. Hi, I'm Mike. And hello, I'm Janine. And this is Welcome to Twin Speaks. We are a bi-weekly podcast exploring the weird and wonderful world of David Lynch's master hit TV series, Twin Peaks. We will be going episode by episode, really discussing the legacy of Twin Peaks that it's left for television and pop culture that maybe you've never heard before. And if you're someone like me, who's actually seeing it for the very first time, um, I welcome you to dive in with me with no spoilers as we go along and I avoid all the Google researching in what's to come with fresh eyes and fresh ears and bask in the wonderfully weird. Yes. And if you've seen the show before, you can see it through the first time through Janine's eyes. It'll be like it'll be like you're watching Twin Peaks for the first time. So grab a cup of joe, grab some donuts and some cherry pie, and join us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Twin Speaks. The Other Side of Darkness is written, performed, and produced strictly as a work of parody. The Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music.